Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with Wes Taylor, a former businessman and IT communications contractor who decided to let go of all the worldly ideas of who he was. In so doing, Wes followed his dream and found what was to become his passion and purpose today. Some say he is a horse whisperer. West will say he chooses to listen to the horse and allows them to communicate with him. West has had two near-death experiences that shifted who he is and how he chooses to live his life. He spent 15 years drowning in alcohol. He also faced down a grizzly bear intent on killing him in the backcountry of Alaska. Both changed his life forever. Some say your life flashes before your eyes right before the end. Wes said all he could think of was his family and how out of alignment his relationships were in all the things he had not done. Wes took five years off to spend every moment with two wild Mustangs he adopted from the Bureau of Land Management. They taught him many valuable lessons, and we will soon hear about those. Wes identified with something in these once wild and free horses that were now in pens and in captivity. The horses appeared to be in the same mental state that he was, removed from everything that was once safe, not sure of his future, and scared. Wes lives on a family farm in Fremont, Utah, in the United States, where he holds retreats and workshops with his wife for 35 years, Miss Cammy, who is an artist and drum maker. Together, they share their life experiences through their passion and purpose to heal relationships of humans and horses, through life coaching lessons, in partnership with the once wild horses, and the healing power of the drum, meditation, and sound healing. Wes says a horse cannot lie. All they know is truth, living in the now, moment to moment. If you're opening to listening, the horse has a message for you. With all that being said, Wes, welcome to Voices of Nature. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. So glad to be here today. So I, I feel like that introduction didn't quite do justice to your background and what brings us here today. So Tell us a bit more about yourself and what led you to be a, a wild Mustang trainer. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity and just talking a little bit here in your intro and, and mentioning the the bear in Alaska and, and my adrenaline, my heart got pumping, man. I kind of flashed back and had some uh, neurochemical feelings and experiences from that. So that, that was a very uh, a trying moment in my life in a sense and have that just be real short. It was this grizzly bear, I mean, I knew I was dead as this bear was coming at me. And, and to have such a raw life moment play out in such slow motion and such space and time that you can just kind of pause and feel everything that's going on. And it feels like everything was just stopped. It was such a surreal moment that it, it really did change kind of who I was and put me on, a, on the path that I'm on now of, of trying to live a purposeful life, not just a acquiring materialistic life. That was a lot of what I was before. So a welcome change, not one I would have chosen, you know, to have a have that be from a grizzly bear. But now that it's done and over with, I'm, I'm grateful I'm through it. So you, uh, in doing some research about your work, you, you talk about using science-based training methods when you're working with these Mustangs. So first explain a bit about your approach to working with the Mustangs, but also tell us about what is science-based training as it applies to, to horses and 
and how that may be different from other forms of training. Absolutely. When I first adopted those two Mustangs and, and come here to the family ranch to try to regroup and, and rebuild my life, I was approaching horse training like anybody else would. I was trying to find some information on online, you know, who can I listen to, who can give me some pointers or some tricks. And, and so I was doing it very conventional and uh, running into a lot of the similar problems. But I, I ended up coming in contact with my mentor, uh, Dr. Stephen Peters, who is a human neuroscientist. And he had a passion for horses and he had a passion for wild horses. And so he took his human knowledge that he had of, of neuroscience and brain science and kind of overlaid that to the horse. And so he was doing his own research on neurochemically how horses operated you know, within their autonomic nervous system. And I was coming along just really trying to figure horses out in my own way. So he and I did some research and did some time together to try to understand this neurochemistry and how it worked with horses. So the science part of what I do with horses is we're not so much protocol or a training program as much as we are affecting the horse's neurochemical responses. And once we started looking at it from an angle of how can I create a place of mental safety for this horse? You know, how can this horse feel or how can this horse neurochemically have neurochemicals of safety? You know, how can we set the horse up to release those neurochemicals of safety? And once we kind of got you know, we did a few experiments and, you know, a lot of trial and error, but we started to find a kind of a, a system or a, a path that we could do that. And once these horses started responding neurochemically rather than responding to training methods, the, the world just opened up. All, all of a sudden we had horses that were, they were calm, they, they were engaged, you know, they were wanting to engage with us. They were kind of looking for more answers from us rather than with the previous model, they were very, you know, fear-based and it was a training model. We're going to do steps, you know, one, two, three, 97 times, you know, until you get it kind of a thing. But coming at it from a neurological standpoint, just getting the horse to feel safe in its environment changed everything. The guard, you know, went down, the caution went down and the horse kind of come out of its shell or come out of its protective space of kind of that instinctive hiding and just kind of observing and waiting to see what was going to happen. Now the horse was open and engaging with what was happening. So it's really using the neurochemicals of the horse. And we have, us humans have the same neurochemical system, our, our fight, flight, our cortisol and adrenaline, and our uh, rest, relax, our parasympathetic nervous system, dopamine and serotonin. You know, we all have these same neurochemicals. It's just understanding how we release them or how we trigger them that affects our environment and affects our ability to learn. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think I got a little bit of it to come through. Yeah. So I guess I just have to ask, right? I mean, we, we are also used to seeing, you know, on TV and in movies, the, the traditional way of training horses, right? Where you essentially break the horse. You, yeah. you keep running it in a circle, you, you whip it, you put the bridle in on it. You know, what, what actually does science-based training look like in comparison to what we're so used to seeing when it comes to training horses. Yeah, great statement. And like you're saying, that traditional method was called breaking horses. And that is a very appropriate word is a lot of that is breaking the horse, meaning it's breaking the horse down, breaking the horse's resistance. And, and that in turn, it's a tough way to do it for both the horse and the trainer in it. Not that you don't get you know decent results that way, but what we're doing with, with the science side of it is 
slowing the horse's mind down to where they're not triggered into that fight flight. Because once a horse and or a human gets triggered into fight flight, right, we're influenced by more cortisol and adrenaline, which means less learning. You know, the more in fight flight you are, the less capacity you have for learning something new. You know, science has proven that as soon as we're triggered into that fight flight, we lose 30% of our decision-making capacity is just instantly gone. And so trying to teach a horse something in that fight flight mode, when they're triggered into that sympathetic fight flight, you have to do it a number of times. You have to do repetition after repetition after repetition, and it becomes kind of a drilled sequence for the horse. So what science does is we, we want to get that horse and get him get the horse calm and relaxed, get more dopamine and serotonin going in the nervous system. And then we only have to show the horse, you know, a couple of three times, whatever the maneuver, what it is that we're asking them to do. And rather than drill them, you know, several or a dozen or 25 times, we'll just show the horse one time and let the horse relax and recover mentally. Let that dopamine and serotonin come into their system. The neurons that fire together, wire together, that horse is going to be calm, quiet, and he's going to get the lesson, so to speak. You know, he's going to feel more comfortable understanding it because he's calm rather than stressed. So using science, we don't need to drill the horse numerous times for a task. We relax the horse's autonomic system, show him the task a couple of three times, and then the horse has got it. So it, what we call it is more gentling the horse. I don't like the word, or I wouldn't use the word of what we do, breaking at all. We, we use the word gentling, and that seems much more appropriate with the science approach. And so I guess that's why you're able to, as you've indicated, train these horses, the Mustangs, in a matter of hours and days rather than days and weeks like the more traditional method. Absolutely. I mean, a, a quick little example that I could use for you, Bob, is if you were taking a, you know, a quiz or, or any of your listeners were taking a quiz about this interview later, they were taking the quiz, you know, downrange at a, at a firing range where people were firing live rounds past them while they were trying to recall information about this interview to answer this quiz. You can imagine how hard that would be for you to recall that information when you're triggered into flight mode and fight mode and you've got you know, these live rounds flying past you, you'd have a difficult time retrieving that information. That's what the opposite of what we're doing with the science is it'd be like taking that same quiz, you know, sitting in a spa where you've got quiet music playing, you're right. nice and relaxed, and then you can easily recall that information. So that's the difference between the two nervous systems of, of what we're working with. Talk to us a little bit about the, the horses now. So we've used the phrase wild mustang. That's a specific type of horse, if I'm correct. What is a wild Mustang and how's that different, if at all, from, again, kind of the, the horses that we see on the screen or you know, read about in our books? Absolutely. So mostly out here in the Western United States, the 11 Western states, there's many herds of wild horses that still to this day live free roam wild out in the, the open country of the Western United States. And so these horses have been living in the wild, some of them for hundreds of years, many of them, you know, for the last few hundred years since, you know, we kind of populated the West here, the, the natives, the Indians had some horses when the pioneers got here. And before the Indians had horses, the Spanish, you know, as they were exploring this area, they left horses in this area. So that's how the horses got here. And then they've just kind of been interbreeding amongst themselves, you know, for these last few hundred years, but they live 
wild out in the desert. And then the, the government agency that's tasked with managing these wild horses is called the Bureau of Land Management. And so they will go in and gather horses from these different areas when they become overpopulated. And then those gathered horses go into holding facilities where trainers like myself and other people can adopt them and then take that horse home, put them through whatever training program that they're doing. And then that horse can become, you know, a very qualified horse in any discipline that, that we might have, you know, for a horse to do. So a real definition of a wild horse is that it's kind of the mutt of all of the horses, meaning it is interbred across different breeds of horses for hundreds of years. What I like about the Mustangs is that all of a lot of the imperfections or the impurities or the weaknesses just kind of naturally got bred out by nature. Because if you're a wild horse living out in the desert and you have, you know, a, a gene or something that has a you know poor eye, eyesight or some health factor, nature is going to eliminate that gene. You know, it's that horse isn't going to survive and isn't going to reproduce. So there's a good natural selection of Mustangs that they're very hardy, very strong, very intelligent horses. And so they, they come from the wild that way. So in comparison to our domestic horses or the horses you might see in your everyday life, those horses have been uh, kept in captivity you know, for generations. They, they've never lived in the wild. They've never had to survive. They've never had to do a lot of that survival-based thinking. And they've never had to tap into their instinctive awareness to you know, seek and find food, seek and find water, seek and find others. Mm. You know, they've never explored that. They're very domesticated. And then we as humans have bred those horses for very specific tasks. And with everything that we try to breed into a horse, we're also kind of breeding something out. So a lot of the domestic horses are very compromised in their abilities to be very well-rounded or very well-versatile because they've been specifically bred. That would be my description on kind of the wild horse versus the domestic horse. Well, so now let's maybe shift it a little bit more and talk a little bit about the connection between humans and the horses. So we actually had a, a guest late last year, Greta Matos, who's an American living in Chile, who had a you know, very, very similar experience to you of kind of moving beyond the material of life. And she uses horses in Chile to, to bring people closer to nature. And talk to us about why horses, maybe more than any other animal, are able to connect humans to nature. Absolutely. And my, my take on that, Bob, my experience in working with horses, first for myself, me kind of finding this awareness for myself, but as I was first started working with these wild horses and I was trying to understand, you know, how to connect with them or how to communicate, how to train, how to do anything with them, the more time I spent in that, I kept reflecting back to myself of, man, I'm, this horse just keeps showing me me. You know, I'm, if I come in the pen and I'm kind of anxious and I'm pushy and I'm, I'm really focused on getting one task done, then, you know, that horse would be very resistant to that and be very cautious and very guarded and, and would just reflect back to me what I was feeling like to the horse. So it took me some time to really to kind of find that in myself. And what I've found with the horse, Bob, is they want to connect with people on a very energetic core, and I would even say soul level or spirit level. The horse doesn't care, you know, what brand of jeans or how big your belt buckle is or, you know, what kind <laughs> of hat you've got on, right? The horse is wanting to connect with you at a soul spirit level. And the reasoning for that is that I believe the horse is holding but one question constantly in their autonomic system. And that question is, am I safe? And so that horse 
wanting to connect with you at that energetic spiritual level is trying to answer that question. Are you safe for me to connect with? And when we humans show up incongruent or out of balance energetically, you know, we might be in a, a setting with a horse, but our mind is back at the office or back at home with the kids or, you know, stressed and worried about whatever it is in our, in our human life, that horse can sense that. And that horse will either A, be resistant to connect with that and just kind of be cautious or guarded, or that horse might be kind of pushy and be pushing or nudging you of like, hey, let go of that. You know, I can't connect with that stress. I can't connect with that anxiety. You got to release that in order for me to to have this connection with you. And I think that's that's a real gift from nature that that comes. I've only found it through the horse. I haven't looked with a lot of other animals, but I've, I've definitely found it in the horse that the horse doesn't have very much of a prefrontal cortex. So it doesn't have this ego or this evaluation or this storyteller or this label maker, you know, where it can describe and, and say things about us. The horse is just real and raw right now. And if you can be vulnerable and open yourself real and raw right now, the horse can connect with you because it can feel safe that it can do so. But if we got too much chatter in our head and we've just got too much noise going on, that creates caution or that creates kind of a, you know, a holdback from the horse. And so that's, that's why I feel horses are such valuable tools to help humans, to help all of us better understand ourselves and better understand nature is that's where the horse wants to engage with us. Is it that quiet, natural, instinctive place, energetically, spiritually, that's where the horse wants to be. And so they kind of try to guide us there. And if we're open to it, we can definitely have that connection. And it's, it can be a very healing moment when we, when we let all of our junk go and we turn it off enough and, and we allow the horse to come in, it, it, can, it can be life-changing for sure. As a rider, I mean, what does, that, what does that difference feel like? So if I'm on a horse and I'm, you know, to your comment before, I'm back, still back in the office and I'm stressed and anxious, what have you. How am I going to feel different on the horse than if I'm present with the horse and kind of living in the moment of being in that horse? Let's, let's take it from the horse's perspective first a little bit, that you're out on this horse ride with the horse. And, and let's say you are you know, in, in your mind and you're, you're back at the office and got all the things. The horse is not going to be able to connect with you or, or communicate with you in, in any physical or you know, feeling way because you're not really there. So now that starts to pause the question to the horse, am I safe? And the horse's answer is going to start to be, no, I'm not. Because this other entity that is with me, I'm not connected to. We're not communicating. We're not together. So now we're separate. Well, if we're separate out in the natural world, we're out in the nature riding around. Well, I now as the horse become the prey animal. And I now need to be wary and be watchful of everything in my environment because I don't have a partnership with somebody else that's helping me do that. So now I have to do it all on my own. So now that horse is just going to be a little more cautious, maybe a little more edgy and going to be just a little more reserved in what's going on. And then you as the person, the human, honestly, you're just a passenger at that point, right? Because your mind is somewhere else. But when we can relax and have all of that be quiet and really connected with the horse and as we're you know, tacking up and getting the horse ready to go on this ride and we're communicating, we're feeling soft touches and we're recognizing each other. We're, we're offering this reciprocity in our conversation and the horse can really connect and feel comfortable with you. Man, now when we go out on that ride and I feel my horse tighten up a little bit and, you know, look to his right at a, at a shadow or a dark spot in the trees and I can recognize and feel, oh, my horse is concerned about 
you know, over there in the trees. I can relax my body. I can maybe touch my horse just lightly and, and just exhale my breath and offer a soothing, calm feel. And that can bring my horse back to me and be like, you know what? That's right. Nothing to worry about. I am safe. Let's keep going. And when you have that type of a symbiotic relationship with your horse that you're energetically connected, it's just a beautiful time to be out in nature because now you're connected with the horse, you're connected with nature, you're connected with the air, the sun, the leaves. I mean, you just feel that that oneness with everything that you're that you're in. And it comes through building this, this connection or this relationship with the horse who is elevating you and, and taking you through this, this nature experience, you know, elevated six, eight feet off of the ground and you're gliding through nature on this horse. It's it's a beautiful experience. Take these comments you just made a bit further on the most personal of levels. Just take us into that moment in nature that you shared with a horse that just is always that special moment that uh, you come back to in your mind. You have the you have oh. your, the grizzly bear on your on the on the one hand. So what's yeah. the what's the opposite? Uh, what's the oh. calming moment with the horse? Thank you. <laughs> yes, let's do take that full circle. <laughs> a little bit of the backstory on this. So I'm I'm on a pack trip with some buddies of mine. We're clear out in eastern Utah, and this is out in some really remote southwestern desert country of Utah. And this is out in, it's an area called Robber's Roost. And this is where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Outlaw Gang, you know, they had a hideout out here in this canyon land, this maze country. And and I found their campsite out there. And, and it took some time, but, you know, we found their trails and their way in and out that they used this hideout. So I like to take a few guys and we go out there and ride every year and just enjoy being out there. So we're out there on one of those trips. It's a pack trip. So we're sleeping overnight just on the trail. And during the night, we'll turn some of our horses out so that they can just graze. And then we keep a couple of horses tied up so we can go gather the other horses in the morning. And well, through the night, the horses we had tied up ended up getting loose with the other horses. So we woke up in the morning with no horses. And they're somewhere out in this millions of acres of slot canyons and slick rock and just this really rugged country. And being since I was in charge of the horses, I was like, well, all right, boys, I'm going to start tracking these horses and I'll, I'll be back when I find them, you know, just stay here and camp. And so I take off on foot. It takes me a few hours and I find a few of the horses and get them gathered up. And I'm, I'm headed back to camp, but there's two horses that I haven't found yet. And I've, so I've got four horses with me and these other two are still missing. And I'm kind of walking along these ridge tops and I just glance over to my left and I look two ridges over and I can see these other two horses over there underneath the shelf of the sandstone kind of feeding in the shade there. And I, I see him, I'm like, oh man, there's, there's those other two horses and they're headed the wrong direction. You know, they're not coming back towards camp. They're heading further out into the desert. And out of the four horses that I had caught, I only had lead ropes on two of them. The other two were just kind of following along. And I remember all, all four of the horses and myself are just gazing across this landscape. And I'm seeing these other two horses just about to go over the horizon. And, you know, they're, they're going to leave this canyon. And I'm like, wow, all right, it's going to be even harder to get them found now. And one of the Mustangs that was with me that was loose, he came jogging up to me while I'm on this little ridge top. He jogs right up next to me. And I'm not kidding you, Bob. He looked right over at me, looked me in the eye, looked back at those other horses that were two ridges away and he whinnies at them, and then he takes off galloping towards them down this canyon. He's got to go down this slick rock and down through the dust and through the sagebrush and around the junipers and down the other side, and he heads up to the other ridge in between me and these other horses. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I've lost another horse. <laughs> He's going to go join those other two, and, and now I've lost this horse. He ran to that next ridge, whinnied to those other horses, shook his head, kind of danced around, 
And then he come running back to me. And those other two horses heard him, heard his whinny. And then they come back and followed him back over to me. And I'm telling you, Bob, it blew my mind that that horse recognized kind of what was going on there that I was trying to gather. This is my perspective anyway, that, you know, I was trying to gather these horses up and go back to camp. And this Mustang that was very green in his training, he'd only been training with me for a few months. And, but he went and called those horses back and he brought them back to me. That was just incredible. I, I stood there for another 30 minutes just watching while those other two horses turned around and started making their way back. And I just was in awe at nature. I was in awe that the horse could help me out that way. That's beautiful. So I, I just have one last question for you, Wes. So as you just discussed, you spend a lot of time in nature, both uh, on and off horses, shall we say? Yeah. How can, you know, we face so many challenges protecting nature, preserving those wild spaces, you know, what gives you hope that we are all going to find a way, you know, to come together and protect nature for not just us, but really for the generations that are to come in, you know, 10, 20, 120 years from now? My hope there, Bob, is, and and I I feel it's just part of humanity, that that nature is, is a key element, our healing our restoration, you know, our recovery of, of our stress and our anxiety of, of the human life that we put ourselves under. So I really feel like nature is required for us to stay healthy and for us to find our way and for us to continue to grow and evolve. So the more, the more programs or the more opportunities that we humans can put together and offer to get more people into nature, having experiences in nature, having healing in nature, releasing trauma, you know, changing beliefs, whatever those things are, nature is a phenomenal environment for that to happen in. And so I think just out of our own instinctive behaviors, we're recognizing that. So Wes, you spend a lot of time in nature, both on and off horses, as you just talked about. Just, you know, as kind of your your concluding thoughts here, just tell us, you know, why you, you're hopeful that, you know, somehow, some way we can all find a way to, to protect and preserve nature and, and not just for us, but for, you know, the future generations, the people coming 10, 20, 120 years from now. I just uh, love you to, to impart some final words of wisdom for all of us. Oh, gosh, it's, it's my hope, right? I, I just believe that part of our human existence, part of our human evolvement here on earth that that nature is it is it's almost like a requirement for our healing or it's it's a key factor in our healing and our wellness so the more evolved that that we kind of become as humans and the more people we have offering you know nature therapy or nature type sessions nature healing the more we can participate in that and the more value that we can find from you know, Mother Nature herself, the creator of, of everything that we're experiencing, why wouldn't there be very valuable tools and remedies in that, in that realm for us to, you know, to heal ourselves and to repair ourselves and restore our autonomic system and, and keep us in balance? So I, I kind of feel that the more stress and anxious that we get as, as humanity, we're also going to have more of us seeking and searching for ways to relieve that. And I, I believe we'll find it in nature. Well said. With that, Wes, thank you for just your, your commitment to making nature a little better, 
for your wonderful insights and stories today. It's uh, much appreciated and I hope we can stay in touch going forward. Thanks, Bob. I sure enjoyed it and uh, look forward to more.